All right, you guys, if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to pick up this week in verse 9. We're on the second to last of the Beatitudes, and uh, it's not, not too shabby for taking one at a time. It feels like it's gone kind of quickly for me. Um, I don't know how it feels for you guys. You can, you can leave a comment card on that. Um, <laughs> you're like, there are none. Exactly. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We, 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 there are always ways for you to leave comments. That's all right. Um, so it was interesting. And, and I, I, this struck me this, this last, uh, well, yesterday, actually this last weekend, um, yesterday I was at my daughter's soccer game and, um, it's her first time playing any kind of organized sport. And so it's fun to watch kids learn on the field. You know, they get a few practices in, but there's not much. And, you know, she's 11. No, she's 10. She'll be 11, right? No, she's going to be 12. (sighs) Don't worry. I'm, I'm more together than I look. (laughs) She's so she's, she's 11 years old and they're out there playing soccer. Right. And so I'm watching her and I keep, I keep telling Sarah, it's hard for me. It's really hard for me to watch them play. It's really hard for me to watch my kids play sports because I want to get out there. And she got run over yesterday. Um, kid just bowled her over. And and she's, you know, Gabriella's small. And so I'm like, Ugh. and the ref doesn't call a penalty or anything. And, and so Sarah looks at me. She goes, are you all right? Because, like, I'm, I'm bending the metal on my little camping chair. Like, I'm fine. And as the, the game ends, um, the coach, she comes jogging over and Gabrielle's like, the coach wants to talk to you. I was like, oh, did he catch me? Did he catch me raging out when she got run over? What did I do? And so I feel like I'm going to the principal's office and I walk across the field and I shake hands. I'm like, hey. And he's like, hey, has, has your daughter ever played, um, you know, organized sports before, you know, like this? I said, no. No, I, I said, the only thing we do, we just, go in the backyard and kick the ball around pretty much. And he goes, I coach three kids on this team that you notice are really together. Like they're, and they are the ones, they're the ones scoring these three boys that he coaches in other leagues and stuff. He's like, they're really good. And he goes outside of those three he goes, your daughter has the most instinct. And he goes, you really need to get her into a league. He goes, she's got instinct. She, she has good footwork, all these things. And as a dad, <laughs> I, I didn't notice I was doing, but I just looked down and I was like, It just, it just blessed me so much. And, and I don't know what it, I do know what it was. It's because I love her. But it, there was just this overwhelming reaction of like, yeah, good job. You know, I was so proud of her. And as I was praying this morning and thinking about this message, I felt this weight over me of like, what if I mess this up? What, what if I, what if I, what if I mess it up? What if I don't, what if I don't communicate well? What if this isn't what I'm supposed to say? And I'm praying and I'm asking God. And I felt like God looked down at me and was like, just go do your best. Just put in the effort. And for so many of us, that's what we need to hear. For so many of us, that's what we need to hear from God is like, we're misreading him. We're misunderstanding. When he's cheering us on, he's trying to fire us up. That's how he feels about us. He loves us. He's our dad. He wants us to, to go out and try our hardest. And he's not wanting to beat us up when we don't do good. Or we don't score a goal. Or we make a mistake. He's so proud of us. 
because of what Jesus accomplished. And I think for us Christians so many times, it's good for us to remember that we're sinners, but we forget the next part that he loved us enough to send his son to die for us, to save us from that. And that's the love of the father that looks at us and says, I'm so proud of you. Good job. It's going to be a long sermon. That wasn't in my notes. But that idea of cost and that love of God just rattled me really hard over the last 24 hours. And I want to read this to you. It's, it's lengthy, but it's worth it. And I, I just want to encourage you to try to absorb as much of this as possible. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he's talking about the grace of God. And he said this, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow and is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Amen? Above all, it is costly because it, co- it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. What has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Maybe someday I'll write something that half that good. Church, how can we take the words of Christ and cheapen them? How can we take the words of Jesus and make them less valuable? It costs God his own son to purchase us. And how seriously do we take the call of Christ in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25, when he said, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? I want to pray as we begin this morning that we would not just recognize the costly sacrifice of Christ this morning, that we would recognize that it identifies us, it shapes us, it molds us, and it forms us into who we ought to be. It changes everything about us. So would you pray with me this morning? Lord, as we begin by looking at your word, and as we consider your great love for us, Lord, I hope that that example that you gave me, Lord, of of the experience from yesterday, this morning in prayer, that that would inspire all of us to remember your great love for us, your sacrifice for us, and that we would allow that to shape us, that we would find our identity in the fact that you love us. 
Lord, that we wouldn't find anything in our lives that we connect with or identify with outside of you. Lord, that everything else is to be used for your glory, but not the thing that defines who we are. No ability in this room ought to define who we are. Jesus, you are our identification because it was your blood that purchased us. It was your sacrifice that saved us. And it is your continuing work through the spirit that is sanctifying us and that will one day prove us holy and pure. Allow that sanctification, that work of sanctifying to happen in us this morning as we study your word. We ask it, Jesus, in your holy, precious name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus continues his sermon. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Why did I feel the need this morning to read to you about cheap grace? Why did I start by basically re-speaking to you Pastor Bonhoeffer's words of cheap grace? Because many times we settle for cheap peace just as much as we settle for cheap grace. We have a vision or understanding of grace being cheap, meaning that it should cost us nothing, that our Christianity is something that's an additive to our lives, not the nucleus or the center of our universe. And when we settle for cheap grace or we struggle with settling for cheap grace, we often will settle for cheap peace as well. And I'm going to explain that as we go forward. In order for you and I to understand what a peacemaker actually looks like, who are we going to look to? Who's our example? Absolutely. Gosh, it's just resounding. Boom, Jesus. That's exactly it. We look to Jesus. So how did Jesus make peace? If I'm following his footsteps and I want to be Christ-like, how did Jesus live the life of a peacemaker? I look at his example and say, if he said, blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus was the, the greatest peacemaker who ever lived. You're like, didn't he turn over tab- tables in the temple? Yeah, he did. I'm not going to deny that happened, but that's not how we define our way of making peace either. I'm going to take one story out of it. Well, how did Jesus live his entire life? What was the greatest example of his peacemaking ability? Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20 says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus was the greatest peacemaker who ever walked this earth because he made peace and reconciled all of creation by dying. He laid his life down. Yes, yet again, we're going to be very uncomfortable this morning. Because if we're talking about true peacemaking, it's not about avoidance. It's not about hiding from issues. It's not about being a quiet person. We view our ministry as peacemakers through the lens of the cross. We're not peacemakers when we avoid conflict or when we're just good listeners or when we refuse to argue. Now, all of those things are not necessarily bad. Those things can be very good things, but they do they make us a peacemaker? Do they define us as a peacemaker? No, because making peace means to wade into conflict. The resistance is fairly light and easy if we're just going to avoid people, but it's a mountain to climb if I'm going to wade into and deal with conflict. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard work. And Jesus was not a peacemaker for the reason that he refused to have discussion about things that he disagreed with. Jesus was not a peacemaker because he avoided conflict. 
Jesus was the one who walked through Samaria, remember? He's the one that stood in the temple and taught. Jesus is the one who called out the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why? Because he was mean and aggressive? No, he was firm and loving. He was firm and loving. And to be a peacemaker, we must be those things. He was a peacemaker because he pressed into conflict and spoke truth and love and emptied himself even unto the cross, as Paul would write about to the Philippians. Jesus' ministry was reconciliation, not appeasement. He wasn't trying to appease people. He was trying to reconcile them, and that's what he sought us to do. He wasn't here to have as many friends as possible or to gain as much wealth or notoriety in this world as he could. He wasn't here to have his name up on a billboard. He wasn't here to have a million subscribers on YouTube to make it relevant. Jesus came to reconcile dead sinners to a holy God. That was his work. That was his ministry. And he did this through his death on the cross. How do we reconcile people? This is where us being Christ-like or Christians comes into very sharp focus and clear view because we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we're ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. How can we say it and not live it? How can we say it and not do it? You're like, well, okay, I want to be someone who goes and tells people that. It's not just about telling them. Jesus reconciled to them, them to God, through his work of dying, death. Yes, that does apply to us as well. Now, that that death could be in literal ways, but I think the ways that we struggle with most often is dying to ourselves, denying ourselves, as Jesus said at the very beginning. Denying ourselves is one of the most difficult things for us to do because we are absolutely in love with ourselves. Me is all I think about. I is the first one that I get up in the morning considering what are my needs. Now, I'm not saying that you have some things you need to take care of first thing in the morning. But think about this. Do you shape the day around you? Are you the center of your own little personal universe? You're living in a dream world. That's not reality. This world doesn't circle around you. This universe is held together by the hand of God. I'm just a part of his story. Some people like to use the phrase, and I'm not saying they're doing it wrongly, but lots of people like to say, well, tell me, like, you know, what's your story? Be like, my story is part of a greater story. I'm just a sub-character. I'm just a grip on the set of God's story, <laughs> Right? I'm, I don't even, I shouldn't even be on the stage at any point. I am just a part of what he's doing. I'm submitted unto his great story, his great plan. And so that means that my life in no way by myself should be considered more valuable than the one who laid his life down, who lived a perfect life. Amen. I don't consider myself to be of more value than him. I certainly shouldn't. But do I live that way? Do I act like my life has more value? Be reconciled to God is the message that comes out of my mouth, but what should my life look like? I'm to deny myself. I'm to take up my cross, and I'm to follow Jesus. And we don't like to get real literal, but Jesus meant that quite literally because he was living in a Roman world. When he said, deny yourself, take up your cross, we don't hear it Christianese. Hear it from the Roman perspective. Hear it from the Greek world's perspective. That is torturous 
death. Torturous death. You're like, oh, sounds like fun. Sign me up. You realize that empowered by Jesus, this is what he's called us to, to lay down our desires and what we want and our name, however we want it to be remembered and let it be forgotten for the sake of his name, for the sake of God's glory. The life of a peacemaker requires the death of self. God's kind of peacemaking is costly and it's painful. It's not hiding away. It's not avoidance. And we're to share in that suffering with Jesus as Peter talks about all throughout First Peter. But in chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. And yet we're so shocked. <gasps> Struggle. Suffering. It's so funny. I was sharing this, this passage with the guys at our guys group on Wednesday. And I said, you know, no matter what, whatever situation you're in, if you're on fire, it's worse. It doesn't matter. It's like, if you're physically on fire, he's like, don't be afraid of the fiery, right? The fiery ordeal when it comes along to test you. It's like, not only is it an ordeal, we're in plenty of ordeals, but imagine being on fire too. You know, like this day couldn't be any worse. (laughs) You you could literally be on fire right now. (laughs) Like that would make it far worse. Being on fire is always worse, right? The guy who's on fire in the movies is never calm. What's he doing? He just goes running through the scene. Ah! He's not happy and he's probably very uncomfortable. So if you guys, this is the type of situations we find ourselves in. And and Peter says, first of all, don't be surprised when you find yourself there as if this is unusual. It's normal to be on fire. Sure. It's normal to be in an ordeal. It's normal to be suffering. He says, instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ. Why? Because it proves that you belong to him. It proves that you are co-laboring in the work that he's doing on this earth. Don't see your struggles and your problems as being like, I'm doing something wrong. Well, Peter says it later on. He goes, don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer. He gives you this list of things. He's like, if you're suffering because of these things, stop it. He goes, but if you're suffering for the name of Jesus because you're standing strong for him, expect it and rejoice. Peter and James are crazy. James says it too. Consider it all joys, my brothers and sisters, when you fall into trials of various kinds. It's like, oh, I get a variety. Oh, it's just Baskin Robbins when it comes to all my problems. It's not like I'm looking forward to these things, but we should expect it. It's like that little bucket of jelly bellies my wife brings to me from Costco. Like, ooh, it's all those different flavors. Like, what kind of trial is it going to be today? And we, aren't, we shouldn't look at that and be discouraged. We should look at it and say, he is faithful in the midst of all these flavors, even the really gross ones. You guys, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. Did you catch what's most important about what Peter's saying here? That your hope is not in what you're going through. It's what your end will be. You can go through much if your mind is right. If your mind is right and the Lord is Lord of your life, you can go through the suffering, the trials, and the struggles and rejoice because your hope is not in now. It's in eternity. It's in the finished work of Jesus. This will look nothing like avoidance. To be a peacemaker who walks in these ways, it will be costly intervention. The way God makes peace 
is important to recognize because we have to ask ourselves, what difficult circumstance am I avoiding for the sake of peace? What am I avoiding? What am I dodging right now? What am I trying to get away from so that I can have peace? Because we should expect suffering. We shouldn't be running from anything. Now, I'm not saying if you are being harmed in some way and it's not okay that you shouldn't be in a safe place. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying you should be in a protected place. If someone's physically harming you, that is no excuse. I'm just going to qualify. That is no excuse to remain in a situation where you're physically being harmed. Okay, so I think you all know what I'm talking about here. If that's the situation, we can deal with that. You should be safe. You should be protected from that. But if you are in some kind of a situation right now that God has placed you in, and you're running, stop running. Don't avoid it. Press forward. Rejoice in the suffering that you go through and recognize that God is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things. We like to look at it and be like, well, all the easy stuff, right? Because all the other stuff I run away from. Too often it's true of us, isn't it? We have to ask the Lord to strengthen us to do the hard, costly work of real peacemaking. D.A. Carson said it so well. Speaking of Jesus, he said, He makes peace between God and man by removing sin, the ground of alienation. He makes peace between man and man, both by removing sin and by bringing men into a right relationship with God. Jesus makes peace between us and God, and he makes peace between us and each other. He gives us the ability to have peace between us as believers. This unity that we have in Jesus is so amazingly described in Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn there with me. It'll be on the screen, but I want you to read this in a chunk with me if you can. And that's okay if you're like, I don't have my device, whatever, it'll be on the screen. I think we broke it up into like three large slides. But in Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 11 through 22, and it's rare that I read a section this large, but I think it's important. Paul writes, In Ephesians 2.11, So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done by the flesh, or done in the flesh by human hands. Verse 12 says, At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. By the way, at some point we were all without hope and without God. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, Mm, amen, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God and one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. Come on, Paul. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone in him, the whole building 
being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. I cannot think of a a section of scripture that brings to light our brokenness, our redemption, and the peacemaking ability of Jesus any clearer than that. It's powerful. And with the context of Ephesians 2, doesn't it give a whole new meaning when we see Jesus walk into that room that was locked? The door shut. They were locked. They thought Jesus was dead. Jesus walks in the room, Luke 24 and John chapter 20. And what does he say to the disciples? Peace be with you. A little bit more power to that when you see peace in his perspective. He had just made peace through the blood on the cross. And he walks and he says, now peace is with you. It was a greeting, but there's another layer. There's a depth there. Jesus brings peace directly to us through his sacrifice. We're to be peacemakers. In the same way spiritually as we think about gospel-centeredness, as we are in the broadest sense of the term as well, if the gospel has transformed every part of our being, then we have to extend the mercy and purity and peacemaking power of Christ to every soul we come in contact with. We should be peacemakers in all aspects of our lives. We ought to be people who seek solutions, communicate in humility clearly, and attempt to lessen tension. There is nothing wrong with seeking to lessen tension. Just don't compromise truth. That's my only warning in that context. When you are seeking to lessen tension, to build bridges, to encourage one another, do not compromise truth and love. You still have to be truthful about it. And you're like, but this is so difficult. I know. I know. I'm right there with you. This is not easy. This is hard. But blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus preached it because he was about to show it by example. He was already living it, but he was going to show us the greatest example through his death. And you're like, how do I do it? You die. You die to yourself. You die to your own desires. You die to what you feel in the garden when you said, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want, Jesus said. We ought to be people who seek solutions. Seek to lessen tension. And church... We must embrace, if we're to be peacemakers like Jesus, the admonishment of James chapter 1, verse 20, remember that your anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Remember that Proverbs 15, 1 says, a gentle answer turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. Think about what you say before you say it, and think about how you say it. Maybe what you're going to say is, is good. Maybe the way you're about to say it will not be received well. Are you offering someone truth and love in a way that they can receive it don't use this and i've heard this done so many times well i only spoke the truth i just said the truth that kind of attitude right there indicates it was absent of love and some people like i'm just trying to be loving i just want to love them i just yeah but just saying that in a conversation could mean that you left the truth out it could mean that you compromise truth to just come across as loving We can't do either. That's why we speak the truth in love. The two have to be together. There's a peacemaking work that happens with us, not only that's gospel transformative and not only relational between us and others, but it also extends to helping peacefully rectify situations in others' lives. Are we bringing people together? Are we doing the work of bringing people together? I can stir people up really easy. 
That's no problem. Bringing people together is difficult. So many times I've had young people especially come into my office. They're not my friend anymore. I'm not talking to them anymore. Why? Well, because they did this. Easy enough for me to be like, yeah, you should be angry with them. Just let it go. Leave. Don't ever talk to them again. Done. Counseling session, 10 seconds. You know, like, I mean, <laughs> that'll be $10. No, I'm just kidding. But like, you guys understand, like, they're, that's easy. The hard work of bringing people together is going to require getting in the midst of that. We may not be personally involved in a dispute. John Stott said this, but may find ourselves struggling to reconcile to each other two people or groups who are estranged and at variance with each other. In this case, there will be the pain of listening, of ridding ourselves of prejudice, of striving sympathetically to understand both the opposing points of view and of risking misunderstanding, ingratitude, or failure. What are three things I never want to experience? Misunderstanding, ingratitude, or failure. I, 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 don't, I like to be recognized. I don't know about you guys. I like to be recognized for things. I'm just like you. We like to pray, pretend like we're humble, right? Oh, it was nothing. Right? What are you doing on the inside? Right? Good job. They noticed. You guys, that's pride. But you think about this, that the easy way out is to want people to just think good of you. And sometimes the only way we come down to that conclusion is by staying out of that situation. The only way I can be the nice guy is if I'm just over here and you two can fight it out. You may be misunderstood for your intentions, but if your intentions are godly and to be peacemakers, you're going to have to get in the middle of it. You're going to have to wade into the junk. And this is not just a pastoral calling. Don't you put this all on me, Christian. It's on all of us. I can't avoid it, and neither can you. And there may be some family situations that you need to wade into again. Listen, Paul said, if it possible, be at peace with all men. Some people are intent on going to war with you. If you've done all you can, you've done all you can. But spend some time in prayer making sure you've done all you can. Spend some time seeking the Lord. Have I done all that I can? to bring peace to this situation? Have I died to myself? Have I denied myself in this situation? Have I represented Christ well? I think there's many situations that we come upon that we really desperately want to walk away from. But we really have to do the hard work of recognizing whether that's what God would do, what he's having us do. By the way, I don't expect you to do that alone. Get some people around you that can encourage you and walk with you through that process. Do not wade into that battlefield alone. Get support. That's what the body's here for, to encourage one another, to bear one another's burdens. And so don't do that alone. Get support. Get people around you. Just to pray for you even. Even if they can't go with you, just to pray for you in that situation. Maybe take people with you that can help you, encourage. There's a lot of situations out there, and I hope that you aren't feeling like a a, you know, this is the only template to use here. The idea is that within the heart, all of these messages of the Beatitudes are within the heart. That if we are doing these things in our heart, that we will find real solutions in the physical way that we carry them out. And it may be different, but the heart should still be the heart of God. Notice this, when we have the heart of God, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. It's interesting here in this text that if you 
have used the CSB or different versions, like you've used the ESV version of the Bible, I think even the NKJV is doing it now, that in the context when Paul is addressing, or one of the writers of the New Testament is addressing the church, when it says, dear brothers, they'll put brothers and sisters, this is the collective group. CSB just includes that automatically in the translation because that's the connotation of the text. What's interesting is they leave sons of God in here and they don't use children as the King James, the original King James version uses. Why? Every now and then, let me just get a little, a little, you know, theological with you because I think it matters here. Why not use children and instead use sons? Don't think of it in a term of gender. Think of it less filial or family oriented and think of it based on character think of sonship and the way it's used in scripture especially this greek word usage when sonship is used in this way they are called the sons of god it's not talking about family relations you are adopted as sons and daughters of god romans chapter 8 right we've been adopted into his family he is our father we are his children it's not that idea that jesus is trying to get across i don't believe because this word is specifically used to connect us to bearing his character this type of sonship is connecting us to his character we are part of his family but in this way, when we think about being peacemakers, how powerful is it when we see ourselves as emulating and living a life empowered by the Spirit to look like Jesus, dying to self, denying self, and people who do that bear the character of God. They will be called those who look like God, who act like God, who do things His way. It's character qualities that people look at and say, that's a godly characteristic. That's a characteristic that, that is, is a godly thing to see. The Jewish thought of son often bears the connotation of partaker of the character. By living as peacemakers, we're reflecting our Heavenly Father's wonderful peacemaking character. We're reflecting His character. Church, do we reflect this aspect of the character of our Savior? Think about how we even have a positive view of people who do these types of things. Sometimes falsely, you know, somebody who comes across as being a peacemaker are like, wow, they're so humble. I'm so aggressive. I don't know about you guys, but as an A-type personality, as an extrovert, often I'll see people that are quiet like them, like, wow, godly, I want to be like that person. Now, that can be misunderstanding, but just think about the general understanding of someone who is a peacemaker draws attention to what? Humility. It draws attention to characteristics that we should bear, things that we've already studied here in the Beatitudes. It's not brash, it's not rude, it's not arrogant. Peacemaking Peacemaking is the work of God that gets your fingernails dirty. It's going to leave some marks. I'm not clever enough to, to fix my car without getting hurt every time. Um, I always get things that are my fingernails and I always cut up my arms somehow. I don't know how. Every time. It's probably because I'm putting too much torque on something. Oh! And then I'll like, you know, knock a knuckle open or something like that. It's that kind of work. Being a peacemaker is applying your skill and your labor to something in a godly way, and you may leave scathed rather than unscathed. It's going to leave its mark on you. We must not stop at recognizing in our minds this biblical truth. If it left a mark on Jesus, why would we expect anything less of our own lives? If the work of the cross was so marring to him, why should I walk in clean and unscathed? I want God to find my hands dirty, not in sin, 
but from the work. I don't need to beautify my face. Nothing helps anyway. But I need to put my effort, my time, and my resources into serving because that's what Jesus did. It's because that's what he said has value. We can't subscribe to the idea that our faith won't cost us anything. The living godly lives will be pain-free. That's a lie of sin to lock us into complacency. Stay in this place. You're comfortable there. Stay right here. Don't move. What's the thing that most people hate? Change. I don't like change. I want consistency. I want regularity. I want everything to stay the same. If it's good, I want it to stay the same. If it's bad, I want it to get good so it can stay the same. You know, that's our, that's our mentality so many times. But think about this. If we're living lives that are pain-free and having a faith that costs us nothing, how is that like Jesus? I'm not saying go out and stir up calamity. Just be ready. It's going to happen. Don't be shocked, like Peter says in 1 Peter 4. Don't let Satan lock you into complacency. What has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. He made peace through his blood shed on the cross. So church, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. Let us be called those who bear his character, his sons, his daughters, who bear the character of our father because we do the dirty work of peacemaking. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider the weight, this sermon has never weighed more heavily on me than it has the last couple months. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful that you have not allowed me to feel free of that pressure. You haven't enabled me to be comfortable. And God, I both hate and love that. Lord, and I think we all understand that that mixed emotion to it. Lord, my flesh wants to be as comfortable as possible. But your spirit within me, it drives me. And Lord, I pray that we would allow you to press into us. To push the boundaries of comfort. To go well beyond them. Lord, if if you lived a life that was so sacrificial, so willing to be broken, why in the world would I expect or desire anything different? Lord, I actually want the sincerity of my words to be it's a blessing to suffer for the name. But Lord, it, it it's hard and I, I need your help. We need your help as a church. Show us how to sacrifice for one another. Give us the practical things to do. Lord, help us to see that there is joy in serving you in these times. That you put us right here for this season. Let's just take a moment and quietly consider these things. Let's keep our eyes closed, our heads bowed, and then we'll worship together.